This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Samantha Power's visit to campus couldn't be more timely, considering the discussion, debate, and controversy here on our campus concerning the decision by the university's board of trustees to refuse to divest from Sudan. There are a number of campus activities coming up related to our own internal campus discussions. On next Thursday, March 1st at 4.30, I forget the location, there will be a town hall meeting on the fund for Darfur, a $200,000 fund set up by the Board of Trustees for student faculty and staff generated projects relating to the issues surrounding Darfur. And then the following Thursday on March 8th, International Women's Day, STAND, the student organization that has been pushing divestment, will be having a rally. Materials from STAND, including their buttons, which say, My University Supports Genocide, and other materials are avail available on the table outside the door. Um, I also want to welcome this afternoon a special guest, Jackie McKay, who is the director of the Chicago Office of Human Rights Watch. And Jackie has left us also on the table outside materials concerning Human Rights Watch's current campaign to close Guantanamo. We're very happy to have a human rights community here at the University of Chicago, and it's part of the mission of the Human Rights Program to link with outside activities, to encourage our students as activists, and to really try to link theory and practice. Samantha Power really personifies that kind of interest in not only being an active writer and investigator of human rights, but also someone who cares very much about bringing the results of her investigations to the attention of the public. She is the Anna Lind Professor of Practice of Global Leadership and Public Policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Her book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, was awarded the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction the 2003 National Book Critics Circle Award for General Nonfiction, and the Council on Foreign Relations Arthur Ross Prize for the best book on US foreign policy. Her New Yorker article in, on the horrors in Darfur, the Sudan, won the 2005 National Magazine Award for best reporting. She was the founding executive director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard. From 1993 to 1996, she covered the wars in the former Yugoslavia as a reporter for US News and World Report, the Boston Globe, and The Economist. She's the editor with Graham Allison of Realizing Human Rights, Moving from Inspiration to Impact. A graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School, she moved to the United States from Ireland at the age of nine. She spent 2005-2006 working in the office of Senator Barack Obama and is currently advising him still. And she's currently writing a political biography of the UN's United Nations Sergio Vera de Mello, who was tragically killed in the attack on the UN office in Baghdad a few years ago. Um, it is with great pleasure that we welcome Samantha Power. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I actually, I was given a pin that said, um, my university supports genocide. In fact, here, because I left it in the, in the cupboard there, which looks like a very glamorous room, but it's actually a cupboard that they put me in. Um, but 
what's amazing is I'm just going to wear this just for the sake of argument, but actually my university doesn't support genocide, and yours does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you should uh, change that. I'm going to wear it here. And I know you're doing all you can, and I, I actually think um, that this will be the beginning of a conversation, the beginning of a, an even more intensive campaign um, from the looks of steely-eyed determination on the, the faces of all of you. And I'm sure uh, that you know, Chicago can be brought around. If Harvard can be brought around, um, I, I just can't imagine the University of Chicago can't be brought around. I realize they're very different. Um, but um, I encourage you to keep up the, the good work, and we can talk in the discussion period more about what that might look like and more about Darfur. Um, what I um, am ostensibly talking about more generally, though, today is um, what I call the collateral damage of the war in Iraq on American foreign policy and on human rights uh, more generally. And so I'm, I'm not going to speak um, for an enormous amount of time, speak for about half an hour, and then really want to hear from you because there are a lot of little sub-themes and sub uh, kind of um, crevices in the whole discussion of human rights and American foreign policy in the 21st century and, of course, about Iraq um, more generally, uh, which uh, I think is burning in the, in the minds of, of many in terms of what to do. So happy to take the discussion as you want to take it, whether to Darfur or to Iraq or to Obama or um, wherever. Um, the, um, the most profound um, damage, uh, collateral damage, of course, is a term that the military uses, um, uh, and it's, it's a factor that they incorporate, officers incorporate, um, uh, ordinary GIs incorporate, as they determine which target to strike. They make a calculation about the damage that uh, would be done to collateral, you know, neighboring properties, civilians, et cetera. And then they make a judgment as to whether the damage done, the collateral damage done, is uh, worth uh, the good that is done by t taking out the target of intent. Um, and so that there's a whole proportionality standard there as to whether it's proportionally uh, worth it. And um, sir, I, I just start off by saying that under no um, uh, sort of thought experiment that I can do can I imagine or, or no rationalizing self-consoling logic, um, can I see the collateral damage done by the war in Iraq as worth any of the good uh, uh, of, of uh, and, and there is, of course, some good done by the war insofar as Saddam Hussein is no longer in charge, but it just isn't, it is a war that unthinkable as it would have seemed in 2003 seems to have done so much more harm um, to so many more people and so many more principles uh, than it has done good even by eliminating uh, a monster of his uh, particular stripes. Um, so I think the collateral damage has been uh, far graver um, than the harm the war was designed to uh, eradicate. Um, but I want to talk about what that collateral damage is. Um, and in laying out some of the, um, the things that I think um, have been undone uh, by the war, uh, I mean to be suggesting also some of the things that need to be redone or rehabilitated uh, in the wake of the war. Um, or even in conjunction with the war, uh, given that uh, the president seems determined to continue the war in some fashion for the foreseeable future. Um, so the first major and most important thing, I, I guess I would say, is just that the in the wake of the war in Iraq, um, U.S. Uh, power, U.S. influence, forget human rights for a second, U.S. power and U.S. influence on every single issue that matters to American foreign policymakers has been eroded drastically. And um, the, the components, when I think about power and influence these days, I think about uh, what gives rise to power 
is on the one hand hard power, which we're all very familiar with, military power and economic power. On its face, both of those things have been uh, not eviscerated, but severely undermined by this war in terms of the deficit and in terms of military readiness. Our inability now, I remember in the 1990s, you're, most of you are too young, but uh, the Clinton administration used to talk a lot about the ability to fight um, two regional wars and one world war at once. Um, that was the threshold for readiness. And when you think now about um, the impossibility of even uh, uh, gerrymandering um, the troops that are needed uh, to keep the Taliban down in Afghanistan, uh, never mind the, the need to lower standards, recruitment standards, and so on, to let younger people in, to let people um, even with retardation in, people with criminal records in uh, to the U.S. military in order to, um, uh, in order to meet the standards and throwing people um, you know, who are even more vulnerable uh, into harm's way. It's just some testament to the sort of uh, near desperation that is afoot uh, within at least the Army um, and to some degree the Marines and the armed services. Um, so it's just, and, and among, of course, the National Guard and, and the reservists as well. So hard power is obviously diminished, um, but the other components of influence that I think don't get enough attention often are not just hard power, but legitimacy. Uh, so other people's perception that we're using our power properly. And uh, that, of, uh, of course, has been undermined by the war itself, by our position before the war on a number of international treaties, which are not, then were not at all dear to us as constituents, or at least dear to enough of us to make a political difference at home, but were profoundly important to countries, to weaker countries, to smaller countries, to countries that felt they needed international treaties to bind the strong, and thus who, even in advance of the war in Iraq, were very skeptical about the American bully kind of, um, you know, uh, trampling over these treaties and turning its back on the Geneva Conventions, on Kyoto, on the International Criminal Court, et cetera. Um, so there's all that, and then of course compounded by Abu Ghraib and the, what appears to be just by virtue of the way that particular tactics for coercive interrogation or torture migrated from Afghanistan uh, to Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib, and, and given the paper trail that is pretty um, damning and, and very much about um, loosening the, the ties that bind uh, interrogators, top-down, very high-level uh, edicts and judgments uh, about um, what could be done and what couldn't be done to prisoners in our custody. Um, but, but given all that, of course, that hasn't done wonders for our legitimacy. And for those of you who care passionately about Darfur, I know that you've probably reached the same wall I have, which is this incredible frustration that we have this movement afoot in this country that's truly unprecedented. It is the, the brewings of a permanent anti-genocide constituency in this country, which is exactly what one would want um, in, in terms of knowing that the way politics works and the way foreign policy works is the only way you will get an issue like Darfur, um, which doesn't affect Americans as such in the near term, but the only way to get it on the political map is if you make noise. And all of you, or those of you who are part of that movement here, have made incredible noise and have forced our four squarely onto the policy agenda uh, in Washington. I mean, the, the, the Bush administration, um, in, in a, in, because it sees everything as rooted and, and related to the global war on terror, as it puts it, um, would like nothing more than to be doing nothing other than cooperating with the Sudanese government on counterterrorism. It would like nothing more than to be competing with China uh, for access to Sudanese oil and allowing its companies the, the, the run of the land there. But what has stopped those relationships from um, uh, blossoming um, has been domestic political pressure by uh, this movement, this movement, students, evangelicals, Jewish groups, human rights groups, ordinary people. And it's, it's been an incredible thing, but the 
when you, when, when you come back to the legitimacy point, when that movement exists and puts all of this pressure on the Bush administration and you actually get what you wish, which is for the president to speak out forcefully on the murder of 400,000 people in a very large African country, um, and, but you have that in one breath and then you have Dick Cheney saying that waterboarding is a no-brainer in the next breath, there's, there's something wrong with this picture. So your politics works, our politics work in one breath, um, but because what we've induced is sort of morality a la carte um, or respect for international principles a la carte, it breeds huge suspicion around the world, especially in the Islamic world, but even in Europe, about what our motives are vis-a-vis -vis Darfur. They don't know about all of you. They just know Bush is talking about Darfur. So it must be, uh, it must have something to do with being just another you know, assault on an Islamic regime, or there must, it must be about oil, it must be about getting you know, into Sudan in some fashion to get something that we want. That, that's the, the assumption, and, and um, we know the difference in terms of understanding how it's like pulling teeth to get anything out of the administration on Darfur, and that it's all extracted from the administration. But again, what comes out of the black box are just these colossal inconsistencies and that undermine our legitimacy and, to come back to my original point, our influence. Third point, um, the component of power um, is, is competence. And, um, and it, it goes without saying that with Katrina, Iraq, even Afghanistan, where there was an initial, uh, you know, in quotes, success in terms of the overthrow of the Taliban, um, the lack of staying power, the, the desire to do things on the cheap, the lack of cultural sensitivity, um, some of this is inevitable. It's about, you know, what happens when you mix, uh, as it were, water and oil, you know, uh, two cultures and countries um, that, that had nothing to do with one another, very little to do with one another in the past. Um, but what you have then is these three things, hard power, legitimacy, competence, all eroded so dramatically by Iraq and its antecedents, but, but um, really uh, in spades by Iraq. And, and our influence is, is just not what it was. We are not the country that put the man on the moon uh, in people's eyes. When I think Sudan, again, for those of you who are active in the Darfur movement, provides a wonderful counterpoint in that um, in the wake of the war in Afghanistan, President Bashir was so sure, the President of Sudan was so sure uh, that if Sudan didn't come to the bargaining table vis-a-vis -vis the North-South conflict, vis-a-vis -vis the conflict between you know, uh, the Sudanese army proper and rebels in the South, if Bashir didn't come to the table, the evangelicals in this country were so powerful and had such influence with Bush, Sudan would be next. And so when Bush appointed John Danforth, the former uh, senator from Missouri, to be his envoy, the Sunnis came scurrying to the peace table, much more than they had ever done in the past. But it was this combination of, of suddenly America was engaging again in the world in the way that they hadn't really since the end of the Cold War. You know, they were showing up, they wanted to beat people up. It was We wanted to beat people up in order to show that we would protect ourselves and that there was no soft underbelly to our democracy. And Bashir was so sure um, that he was next that, you know, within almost, I think it was less than a year, within nine months of full-on energetic high-level diplomacy, a civil war that had lasted for more than 20 years at that point was brought to an end in part by American leadership. That was, that was recent, that was 2003. And early, the, the deal was done in early 2004 before Iraq had you know, gone, uh, imploded um, uh, in the way that it has uh, steadily since. Um, so take now Sudan and our inability to get what we want, our inability to rally uh, other countries to our side within international institutions to build at least a diplomatic coalition of the willing in order to isolate that government. Take our desire to see the end of enrichment in Iran, uh, uranium enrichment, 
isn't happening. We, 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 no matter how hard we push, there is a flaunting um, of international uh, will and of American will uh, in particular. There's some progress there uh, recently with the Security Council resolution and a sense of vulnerability on the part of the Iranians, but it's very clear from people who know that policy best that the United States has sort of maxed out in terms of what it can achieve from other countries, what it can get from other countries as a sanctions package in order to deter Iran. So if this doesn't work, we're out of tricks, except what many of you, I'm sure, fear lie in the, in the wings as a trick. North Korea, um, some evidence, again, that just by backing into a multi-party talk process, we were able to um, you know, cajole North Korea uh, into, uh, into an agreement. So some evidence of some lingering influence, but there's nobody involved in those talks say that it would have been possible had we not had China so centrally uh, involved in those, in those talks. And remember, it was just recently that North Korea tested the nuclear missile um, when, you know, against all of American pleadings not to do so. UN reform, the Bush administration, believe it or not, had one of the more progressive packages um, within uh, the UN last year in that uh, torturous 12-month um, process to try to uh, do away with some of the, the sloth, uh, you know, these 60-year-old rules uh, within the United Nations, the effort to make the Human Rights Council um, a council that would, uh, you know, uh, deny uh, membership to abusers, or would have rules that would make it more likely that abusers would not gain entry, and um, almost because the United States was standing for these things, other countries just basically thumbed their nose and, uh, and united uh, in, in very strong opposition. So again, some of these things are really unthinkable um, when you think about just, just three or four years ago, the idea that um, developing world countries so dependent on American foreign aid or American trade or whatever would have the gumption to just say, no, sorry, you know, we're, not, we're not playing, we're not interested, um, is really a sign of just how, how steep the gradient um, of the de decline, however temporary, but the decline of US influence is. Um, the second, um, so that's influence down. <laughs> the second component of, um, or the, of the collateral damage, as I see it anyway, is that um, in the absence of American leadership and with the demise or deterioration of American influence, the commons, um, you know, the sort of this place where refugees and stateless people, the victims of genocide, people who aren't being looked out for by their own states, um, in it, so we can leave for the time being anyway global warming and the, the larger commons, but, um, but basically civilians in need of protection um, are not having much luck um, securing support um, and protection from the outside world. Um, there's this weird duality in American foreign policy where you're sort of a little bit, America's of course damned if it does, damned if it doesn't, um, but the, um, the fact of the matter is there are very few cases in the last 15 years of uh, significant human rights abuse where the rest of the world, minus the United States, has leapt into action with any uh, uh, earnestness or, or promptness. And so in this sort of paradox, we all know, I mean, I've written a 600-page book of the flaws in the American political structure and how inattentive we are. Uh, as a country to human consequences, and I think that's just, you just have to go through the Cold War record of assassinations and covert operations and certainly where we've ended up today. Um, so all of that is true, but that said, there is no uh, cavalry out there and no cavalry leader, um, as I think the last few years have revealed. There is a void in terms of uh, human rights leadership on the international stage. Now, there are exceptions. Europeans are much better, of course, than the United States on development assistance and on things that arguably over time 
will bring about amelioration uh, in living conditions for people around the world. And that's very significant. But um, right now you have um, something like, I think it's 130,000 peacekeepers, maybe even higher than that now, 140,000, I think, uh, peacekeepers uh, active around the world, um, you know, again, patrolling the commons, let's say. Whenever the UN peacekeeping department gets involved, I like to think of it as uh, it's usually the result of uh, market failure. It's basically where no big muckety-muck cares enough about a place to do something on its own. You know, it ends up being sort of the, the you get enough residual national interest from enough countries to get a peacekeeping mission to go in there. But it's also usually the places where um, you know it's the most dangerous and the most hardest to patrol because if it were easy, you'd have people assessing costs and benefits very differently. But so we have, I mean, some of these places are quite stable, but many of them are, like Congo and places like that, are, are, are very, still very toxic and, um, and very dangerous. Um, in these 130, 140,000 peacekeepers, among them, there are almost no Europeans playing. They just don't do peacekeeping anymore. They don't do the UN. They opted out. Srebrenica, Rwanda, et cetera, uh, they weren't really involved. I mean, the Belgians were involved in Rwanda, but there's just been a major backlash against UN peacekeeping generally. And so who, the people who patrol the commons, for the most part, are Bangladesh, Uruguay, Nepal, India, Pakistan are great, Jordan, uh, Brazil, increasingly China has 3,000 peacekeepers now, which is a, you know, dra not very many for China, but, but a drastic increase um, for the peacekeeping department. I say this because you know, then we complain about the quality, we in sort of Western lamenting uh, citizens complain about the quality of the peacekeeping as it's done and the lack of command and control. Um, but among developed countries, there is no appetite to go to these kinds of places. And while in this country, you see with the Darfur movement, the beginnings of a consciousness that force onto the policy radar and attention to crises and conflicts that governments otherwise would not pay attention to, as far as I can tell, there's almost no stirring in Europe of a comparable movement. So there's no um, you know, sisterhood out there that might you know, be pressuring um, uh, governments with more legitimacy perhaps seem to be more competent uh, into uh, action, and I'm just talking about diplomatic action or servicing any ultimate UN peacekeeping force that might eventually deploy to Darfur. Uh, there's no appetite for that in Europe and no pressure for that appetite to exist. Um, the, just a, a sort of sideline on the strategic damage done by Iraq um, here for a second. Um, so the sort of third point, if you go, you know, influence uh, the commons, the, the unpatrolled commons. And then this third thing is a sort of a sub, smaller point, but um, because of the war in Iraq, we have incentivized behavior um, internationally that is very destructive. Uh, this is, I mean, may have happened anyway, but uh, I don't think there's any question um, that there is a link between making the choice to invade Iraq, which was the country that didn't have weapons of mass destruction, even though, let's assume, uh, that members of the Bush administration thought that uh, Saddam was on the verge of acquiring uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, but so you had Iraq that didn't have them. We were known not to have them in a state that it was risky to invade. North Korea was known to have them and was enough and known to have enough material to build six more, apparently. And the decisions made to invade Iraq. What signal does that send then to potential nuclear uh, aspirants around the world? Get a nuclear weapon if you want to guard against U.S attack. Um, additionally, just on the, and that's I think what Iran, the lesson that Iran has taken, and you're seeing more and more conversations, even Saudi Arabia now, talking about picking up a, a, a nuclear weapon uh, if they can, and 
Um, I mean, this pr the sort of proliferation incentive has been incredibly destructive, I think. Um, in addition, uh, just on the Iran point, by what the United States, of course, has done despite deeming Iran part of the axis of evil by not making distinctions among uh, the countries in its axis of evil, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, um, it, the, and then going to war against Iraq, sort of lumping Iraq and Iran and North Korea together, um, but not keeping in mind, of course, that, that uh, Iran's greatest enemy in the neighborhood, and this was the logic of some very amoral, immoral uh, policies in the 80s when the U.S. was aligned with Saddam Hussein, but quickly forgetting uh, that uh, Iraq was Iran's greatest headache uh, in the neighborhood. And so simultaneously with the war in Afghanistan, by destroying the Taliban, temporarily at least, and the war in Iraq by creating a failed state next to Iran that posed no challenge, was indeed arguably just a playground um, for, at least in, in, in southern Iraq, uh, for Iranian elements. Um, the United States has both incentivized the acquisition of nuclear weapons, I believe, and also taken away uh, the two deterrents that Iran might have had on either side, Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq. So not from a strategic perspective what one had hoped for, certainly in, uh, in going into Iraq. Fourth um, and, and, uh, is that the, in the wake of Iraq, there is a strong temptation um, among Americans as well as citizens abroad um, to sort of throw baby out with bathwater on, on principles. So, if um, when President Bush has, has made so much out of drawing the link between values and interests, you know, saying such things in his, in his second inaugural, you know, sort of beautiful speech, West Point address, everything, but you know, um, stability cannot be purchased at the expense of liberty. You know, 60 years of accommodating repression in the Middle East has done nothing to make us safe. But this kind of, you know, this linking of, of, of security and, and he doesn't call it human rights because human rights is a, is a language that would invoke a whole series of international instruments, but it calls it liberty, calls it freedom, sometimes calls it dignity. Um, <clears throat> but this um, rhetoric about democracy promotion, about liberty, et cetera, has had, um, and, and then combined with the, the policies, the detention policies that I've alluded to, um, and the war in Iraq and the abuses um, that have extraordinary rendition and so, some of the other things that have been features of the, the conduct in the war on terrorism, so-called war on terrorism, um, has led to a temptation to say, Oof, well, if democracy just means regime change, or if democracy, if all Bush really means is electocracy, you know, where we turn up and we have elections and we recognize the results of those elections if we like the outcomes, but we turn our back on them if we, if we don't, what does that do for the, for the then what's democracy mean anymore? I mean, not to give to the United States too much credit as getting to define concepts around the world, but, but, but certainly what one sees among democracy advocates or who used to self-identify as democracy advocates is um, what they call, um, they refer to American leadership on democracy and on their behalf, especially in particular countries. You know, when Condoleezza Rice turns up and asks for a dissident in Egypt to be freed or puts pressure on Saudi Arabia in some fashion, these dissidents have come to calling it the hug of death, you know, sort of like the kiss of death. Um, you know, no, any, no, no, not that, no. Um, and you can understand why, because of the, the and we've all seen the, the polls and, and what America's standing is and, and the, you know, the view of the degree to which America adheres to the values that it espouses. Um, and so what that means is it's made it very difficult for moderates and reformers, the very people that we hope to elevate, both for their own sake, hopefully, but also for the sake of our long-term security, um, uh, and you see a real distancing on their part, 
uh, from uh, the United States, but also um, to some degree, you know, from any kind of vocal leadership on behalf of these principles. Just as disturbingly, in this country, especially among progressives, there are, uh, there's very, very disturbing poll data that shows, I think it's now above 50% of Americans believe that after we get out of Iraq, America should just come home and mind its own business. And, and, and it's very tempting and very appealing. The only trouble is, of course, that there's no way, I mean, there's no 21st century way in which the United States isn't actually doing business, literally engaged in commerce uh, around the world, isn't, does, isn't maintaining trade relationships, isn't maintaining diplomatic relationships, and there's probably no way it's not looking out for threats to the United States abroad. So the United States is going to be involved in some fashion abroad. The question is, in our desire to kind of come home after having bungled um, recent years so badly, um, you know, are we clinging to an illusory idea that there is such thing as neutrality? You know, that you can somehow be active abroad without weighing in on values uh, at all, given the taint of us weighing in on values these days, um, when what that has meant in the past, of course, is we're not neutral, we're pro-abusive regime, because we're silent on abuses, and we're actually investing in governments and giving huge amounts of aid to governments that are themselves inattentive to these principles. So while it's tempting, certainly it's tempting to, to ask American leaders, very tempting to ask them to be quiet about uh, principles until we've gotten our house in order uh, in some fashion, if it's, or to begin to strive toward getting it in order. Um, uh, but I think it'd be a mistake um, to think that, that uh, it's possible to either not be active in the world or be active in a fashion that is simply neutral, where you can be, I mean, because I really do think uh, there is a degree of complicity that has been evident in the history of American foreign policy that is part of the reason some of these threats have brewed in the first place. Um, uh, it's about these relationships and these unblinking, uncritical relationships with abusive regimes. Um, so uh, just a, a few more points, and then I want to open it up. Um, that, that I wanted to make that aren't actually about collateral damage, but that are trends uh, that predate the war in Iraq, but that have picked up steam um, with the war in Iraq because the United States has sort of been out for the count uh, in terms of uh, leadership, legitimacy, competence, uh, influence, etc. And and one of these um, additional sort of non-collateral damage, but damage uh, to human rights and U.S. foreign policy is the rise of China um, and the strictly, ruthlessly. Um, narrow uh, conception of national interest, the mercantilist approach, which is very familiar to anybody who, uh, you know, watched the United States uh, operate abroad. There's, there's nothing, especially sometimes when you hear people talk about China, you would think they were somehow, you know, the most immoral, uh, you know, entity operating abroad. God forbid they were actually going in and trying to extract Sudanese oil. Like, we would never do that. <laughs> we would never do anything like that. Um, you know, God forbid they'd be giving money to an abusive regime to build a palace like he just did. Hu Jintao just went to Khartoum and, of course, gave Bashir $13 million to build a palace. We would never do anything like that, would we? Well, it turns out they're doing it. Um, they're, they're, you know, at some point are going to have the economic engine, you know, far greater than ours to be doing it. Um, but they're doing it under the glare of our spotlight. So we've, our norms, you, know, you wouldn't guess it by some of the behavior of our government in recent years, but our public norms, our sensibilities have changed and evolved to some degree. We've started to see this link between liberty and security. Even bi business people, you know, in the corporate social responsibility movement have started to see there actually being a, a financial return to doing things a little more humanely. And then suddenly you get this, you know, 500 pound gorilla showing up, suddenly willing to 
exert itself in these really um, pronounced uh, ways, and we say, oh my God, you know, what is this going to mean? And we're right to be asking those questions, and especially when the United States is down for the count with this vacuum in terms of international leadership, the Chinese are filling it um, you know, with no, very little regard for labor rights, certainly, and, and no regard for the and great reverence for sovereignty and, and for the idea that you know, outsiders should not be meddling in the affairs of others. Um, but a desire to meddle on their own part when it comes to extraction of economic resources and trade relationships and so on. Um, another uh, trend uh, that predates Iraq and, and that I find disturbing, and I'd be curious uh, uh, among you students whether you think I'm overreacting here, but um, I just saw a statistic that said um, the typical American household has 2.55 people and 2.73 televisions. Um, and half of American homes have three or more sets. Um, so there are many who point to this and the internet and all this as, as grounds for hope that somehow, you know, even with the rise in China, you know, what we'll see is uh, just such a proliferation of information that there, it'll be the Rod Rodney King phenomenon where if, if, you know, if we can see what's going on, surely it'll alert us to the state of affairs in, in, in the Los Angeles police system and, and, and in Congo and in Zimbabwe. And, you know, if people have little, as we learned in the Saddam Hussein trial, if they have the little video phones, you know, you can, you can see anything, any abuse, any heckling, any, any uh, repression, any anything. So surely, surely, that, surely information is power. But what, what concerns me is, um, is several things. I mean, that, that our, the gatekeepers now are so diffuse. Um, it used to be a big problem for human rights people to sort of elevate, to get their issues and their concerns onto the public radar because you had to get you had to somehow clear you know Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings and those are your gatekeepers or before that Walter Cronkite etc um, but what's the alternative now with, with 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 few gatekeepers with no gatekeepers how does anything with all the trouble in the world the problems in the world how does anything kind of get elevated and as we get more um, as we get to be more selective about the news that we receive, you know, they used to, a few years ago, people used to talk about the great thing about the internet was you got to create the daily me, you know, so it's not the daily mail, but the daily me, so like the daily Samantha. So I get to type in, I mean, you probably all do this, but you're, you know, the, the five or six issues you care a lot about. Well, I'm, I do, you know, genocide and atrocity prevention, torture stuff for a living, but honestly, if I, if I didn't subscribe to the New York Times, I'm not sure that I would type into my daily me, you know, genocide, torture, mass death, atrocity, you know, I don't know, maybe I would, but I think it would, there'd be more Manny Ramirez than Radovan Karadzic in my little code words, this is University of Chicago, nobody knows who Manny Ramirez is. Is this possible? The National League. Yeah, yeah John. Manny Ramirez is a baseball player. But the point is, uh, a good one, he's a good one when he plays occasionally. Um, but but um, my, my point is, Really, are we, are we like, I feel like so many of the human rights advances that have been made have been made because we were arrested, our consciousness was arrested, that we didn't go seeking to be moved, we just were moved, we stumbled into it, you know? And, um, and I just wonder the, the degree to, I mean, I, I, I also read recently that um, Dick Cheney, when he travels, um, you know, and, and, and stays in hotels, the concierges and the people in the hotels are under very explicit instructions that every, when he enters his hotel room in this, his suite, every television in the suite should be on and all of them should be programmed to Fox News. 
and this is a true story. I mean, this is was Scott McClellan or somebody said this publicly, you know. And but I mean, if, okay, we can groan because we may not like Fox News, but but if I ever had the forethought, I would say whatever you do, you know, don't have Fox News on my, you know, is that better? I mean, necessarily, I don't know. It seems better to me, but but. Uh, the point is, I, I don't know that we're going to be stumbling in either to alternative viewpoints as we get narrower and narrower. So there's a, a recipe for more polarization, which is a separate conversation. But, but also, um, I just don't know that we're going to be seeking out some of the gravest injustices um, as you know, pleasure reading. Um, and I, I know that for me anyway, uh, so much of what's happened to me in life has been about serendipity and about just sudden exposure to things that I hadn't expected. Um, Final point, it just sort of brings it all together in terms of it, it merges the collateral damage that Iraq has done and then something that's structural, like the rise of China and like the media point, um, uh, but, but, but that has been exposed uh, in spades by uh, the events that have followed the war in Iraq or events that have followed 9-11. And that is um, the vulnerability our checks and balances or our constitutional system actually um, has within it. I mean, or the, the, you know, that... I think we, we all, um, you know, people of my generation anyway, we, we, we lived, you know, we might have been critical of American uh, foreign policy in the past, and, but there was some notion that, you know, uh, the combination of, you know, really I think the best investigative journalism in the world, um, the best funding for investigative journalism in the world, uh, having uh, a divided government that was so willfully divided, you know, local, state, federal, executive, judicial, legislative, Senate, how, I mean, it just seemed like, you know, the founders really nailed it. But it turns out that, um, at least when it comes to foreign policy, our ability to kind of export human rights abuses is away from the, the glare of those checks and balances is great. We're incredibly sophisticated, as the rendition, the, our ex recent experience and, and the documentation of extraordinary rendition shows. You know, as, as somebody said, I don't have the quote here, somebody, but you know, when, when rendition was first exposed in the Washington Post back in 2002, that's five years ago, um, and Clinton had been doing it too, but in, in um, you know, uh, apparently, you know, to, with written assurances and much greater elaborate lengths to ensure that the countries to which uh, terror suspects were sent would not torture, apparently. One wonders why you do rendition then, if, if so. I don't know what Clinton was up to. But very explicitly in 2002, um, one of the people in charge of the rendition program just summed up the policy very simply, and he said, um, you know, um, he's, he's something like, um, it's not, you know, what we're doing with rendition is, is we're not going to beat the expletive out of them. We're going to send them somewhere else so someone else can beat the expletive out of them or whatever. And it was the front page of the Washington Post in December of 2002. And even still, um, you know, Abu Ghraib had to, you know, was surprising to people in 2004. This was, you know, written and admitted. And, and I say that because um, many of the people involved in these programs, and this, this is very much true to this day, especially after the congressional punt on the Military Commissions Act and the recent federal court punt on habeas corpus and whether to give those rights to detainees. Um, but there is a widespread belief among political leaders in this country that being for torture, although they don't use the word torture, but being for uh, extraordinarily coercive interrogation techniques is good politics. That is, it's good. It, 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 it sells well in the heartland. It sells well in the swing states. Um, why else would Karl Rove, who is very strategic about such matters, would he introduce um, and get the Republican Party to introduce the Military Commissions Act on the eve of the election? 
and be having those debates where the president was, you know, talking about the techniques that he thought were appropriate and talking about giving interrogators full freedom and talking about how, you know, uh, civil libertarians and so on were uh, exposing our uh, country uh, to threat, invoking the ticking bomb, uh, you know, at almost every press conference or the imminent mushroom cloud or whatever. And, and I mean, it was seen to be very good politics. You'll note that the in the first hundred days of the new Democratic um, uh, Congress, you're not seeing uh, hearings, finally, with the gavel and the subpoena power. You haven't yet seen hearings on detention policies. I think they're coming, um, but there is a great uh, squeamishness within the Democratic Party to take the lead on this because of the poll data in the United States. And for those of you who haven't seen last week's New Yorker, um, there is a wonderful article by, really important article, I think, by Jane Mayer, who's done phenomenal work, but on 24, which I am like the last loser in America who hadn't watched 24 until this year. Then I become obsessed and I watch like all the episodes in like a four day period. <laughs> and I think it's the most amazing thing, but I definitely know that I'm uncomfortable about something, but I am rooting for Jack Bauer and, and, and uh, absolutely save my country. And, and uh, but I'm noticing that every time he tortures, um, which is every other show I now learned from the New Yorker article, um, he always gets the right information. It always helps to torture. And it's exactly the opposite of what, you know, the Army Interrogation Manual tells interrogators and, and you know, most of the studies have shown. And, and um, so in this article, it reveals that um, uh, before 9-11, there used to be four, was it, four instances of torture on primetime television annually. And since 9-11, that number is up to 167. But more interesting and more important than that is that before 9-11, the only torturers who were ever on mainstream television were the villains, and now they're the heroes. And, and so what effect is that going to have over time? But back to my checks and balances point, because that just sort of abets that sort of the climate of, of torture. But seeing um, the degree to which having one party in control of the executive branch, the House, the Senate, at a time of perceived threat, uh, grave threat, um, how vulnerable we were to seeing, you know, rights being peeled away. Um, I said this earlier today, but, um, you know, many of us thought that the rights in the Geneva Conventions that, you know, uh, the especially definitions of torture and cruel and degrading punishment, but were the essence, they were the easy human rights. They were the ones you didn't have to debate in philosophy class. And you didn't have to rank in international law. It's like, you know, you know, what's the core of human rights? You just, everybody would say, okay, right to life and, and, and right to be free of torture and cruel and degrading punishment. You know, and then you get to the, the tricky ones. <clears throat> well, who knew that, in fact, these weren't seen, by some people anyway, as human rights. They were seen as state-given privileges. Um, and anything that's given can be taken away, as, as we've learned. But the structural um, uh, problem, of course, is not only that, that torture has occurred, um, and, and systematically, as I said, as it seems, um, but it's that there's been no accountability and no um, rehabilitation of America's standing with regard to detention. Um, the um, 380 people have been released from Guantanamo, 380, most of whom spent at least a year, some of whom spent as much as uh, four years, just a, a group of 35 people who were released last week. Um, they're sent off, you know, with uh, new running shoes, um, you know, flight back, and, you know, best wishes. Um, there have been 11 investigations of, um, you know, whether this is a bad apples phenomenon or a top-down phenomenon. And uh, the highest level investigation was uh, James Schlesinger, uh, the former defense secretary, very esteemed Schlesinger. Um, 
and but he was uh, and so he was the one who had the authority to actually you know talk to Cheney and Addington and Rumsfeld and some of the high level people, um, but he was appointed by Rumsfeld. <laughs> so when he released the report and somebody said, this is back in 2005, somebody said, well, do you think Rumsfeld should resign in light of all the documents and so on and his approving all these course of techniques that then showed up in all these places in these different forms. And he said, um, I should write it down here. He said, um, uh, Rumsfeld's resignation, quote, would be a boon to all of America's enemies. And that's, that's the highest level uh, investigation that we've had so far of this systemically. Um, so uh, my point in all this is that there's Iraq damage and then there are these vulnerabilities that, um, that we sort of see exposed by the fears that we experienced in the wake of 9-11 and the fears that have been compounded by our isolation internationally. So it's, it's just this terrible paradox that the more we overreact and, and, uh, or you know, strip liberties or, or are involved in scandals, the more people are queuing up to be threatening uh, to U.S. interests and to the United States and to Americans. Um, and the more fearful we are, the more prone we are to overreact, um, I believe, anyway. Um, I just want to close with a few uh, sort of thoughts and on, on kind of remedies, um, which are, must be overdue at this point. Um, the, um, the first uh, sort of guiding principle, I feel like, uh, as we think about going forward and we think about an Obama presidency, or one of us does anyway, and I hope all of you do, um, but his, uh, is that we, you know, we have to get our own house in order. It's going to be very, very difficult to, I think, I think two trains have to run at once, but it's going to be very difficult to be uh, a leader on, I mean, even if we get our act together on global warming, you know, to show up now as if the last, you know, five or ten years of history haven't happened, and, and uh, let's say in a, in, a, in a Clinton administration or Obama administration, um, it, it, it's just not, it, we're not going to have the clout that we had. There has to be um, uh, some house cleaning done, what Martin Luther King used to call self-purification. Um, uh, there has to be reckoning. It's not something that institutions do naturally, reckoning. Um, Catholic Church didn't do it naturally. Enron doesn't do it naturally. Governments certainly don't do it naturally. And this big behemoth of a government doesn't do it naturally. But the idea that we can, even when we decide to change our mind on some of these policies, when we close Guantanamo, when, they, when uh, the Human Rights Campaign, Human Rights Watch's campaign to close Guantanamo, let's say it works, and somehow we find, you know, either the commissions, you know, process these people, or you have some other criminal process that goes over. We change, and we instill habeas corpus, or we move them to American shores and treat them. Who knows? Whatever it would take, but but we can't just, you know, say, okay, do over. Um, I don't think there's a do over in a globalized world where, with with the media, with the Daily Me, the Daily Osama, as well as the Daily Samantha, there is a measuring uh, and a tallying of deeds. Um, so getting our own house in order is central. And part of that means, of course, you know, the, the measures that we can take at home and just being the city on the hill and doing more to fight poverty and establish universal health care and have a more sound and humane immigration policy. I mean, the kinds of things that people are noticing abroad, where our soft power used to come from, our ability to attract rather than, and to, and to convince rather than just to coerce. Um, second sort of takeaway is just that these problems that lie on the horizon, whether it's failing states, global warming, um, Counterterrorism, HIV, you know, TB, you know, public health calamities, et cetera. Uh, they're just really, really hard, and and uh, they're really big and they're really hard. We know that they can't be handled by just by definition. They're transnational problems, transnational threats. They can't be handled by single countries. Um, but they're just. It just seems like our whole uh, engagement with international institutions doesn't have to be ideological. It doesn't have to be John Kerry saying. 
it's just better to do things multilaterally than unilaterally, it can be a ruthlessly pragmatic appreciation for why we need to play with others. Um, but that's where I come back to self-purification. The others aren't necessarily going to be. We, we're going to hate international institutions a hell of a lot more before we start liking them again. Because when we show up ready to play, um, we're probably going to be uh, subjected to significant hazing. Um, but their, their interests also are at stake, and we need to be able to, you know, uh, to convince them of that. Um, third and, uh, point in closing is just that, uh, you know, I talked at the beginning about Dar the Darfur movement, how almost tragic it was that this movement is all dressed up with almost no place to go. You know, they're just ready and, and, and committed, and yet, you know, it is when it, when it uh, extracts concessions from <coughs> a government, uh, that government doesn't have the standing abroad and doesn't have the resources, is totally distracted by profound strategic concerns, North Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Lebanon, Israel-Palestine, uh, Iran, you name it. I mean, it's very, very difficult for human rights policies to make their way on the map. Um, but this noise, this model, this paradigm that has been established over the last few years of these very unlikely bedfellows coming together on human rights issues is the framework um, that has to be brought forward, that has to be sustained. Somehow, without much positive reinforcement, <laughs> um, you have to kind of keep it up. And I think it's very important, though, that we turn our attention also not only to, I mean, I think Darfur is somehow, for, for people who are confused about Iraq, about whether now we have a responsibility to stay, having done what we've done, and are we doing more harm than good, more good than harm, is it a stopgap, is it a, an exacerbator? People are confused about Iraq, they say, oh, I can't deal with Iraq, it's just too hard. Do something about Darfur. You know, it just seems so much tidier, so much simpler, and, and we, we unfortunately, you know, we have to do Darfur, we have to certainly play a role as a country in, in tending to the atrocities in Darfur, we have to summon other countries who have more standing, who have more resources, um, but we also have to think about these, the morality a la carte problem and try to, get our, try to look at also uh, the policies that the United States has carried out, not just sins of omission, but sins of commission, because without sort of undoing them, without rehabilitating concepts like democracy and liberty and human rights and so on, um, we're not going to be uh, the country either that put the man on the moon or that can lead in any moral domain anytime soon. So I'll leave it there and look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.